Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join, join us inside the morgue. Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and real autopsy technicians, Jess and Alice. And I'm sure many of you have seen Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities out on Netflix, and you've binged it all already. But there was one episode in this new series that really caught our attention, and I bet you can guess which one it is. It's the one called Autopsy. This series kind of made us think of American Horror Story if it had a crossover with Black Mirror. Both shows also amazing. And there's a lot to unpack and talk about in this episode, so we're just going to get right into it. This episode starts off with a scene of mine workers down in a tunnel or a cave, and they get on the elevator to go down to a different lower section of the mine. A strange man then jumps on top of the elevator as they go down. He jumps off when they reach the ground, and he rolls this like weird ball thing towards some of the workers. It's making these weird sounds, and the man who threw it starts running away. The ball just basically explodes, and the mine workers are crunched by the rubble. Later, we see the town mourning the loss of the men who were killed in the mine, and we see memorials on the street for the men, and some, like, missing posters for other people all over town. We see a man in a trench coat named Carl get off a bus in town and make his way to the sheriff's office. Carl works for the coroner's office and is talking to the sheriff, Nate, about the ten men who died in the mine. Carl says it is the position of the coroner's office that workman's compensation law being clear that death benefits shall only accrue to dependents of those whose death arise out of the course of their employment, not in the course of their employment. So, because the men were killed while they were working, their families won't see any of the money to bury their loved ones. The investigators concluded that there was strong presumptive evidence of a bomb. Nate, the sheriff, says he thinks he's cursed that it isn't fair that the innocent get punished, and that bad things have been happening to good people. He thinks this is like one of those nightmare specials that you may never get to the bottom of. He starts telling Carl a story. Two months ago, a man named Ronald Hanley came up missing. He was a mill worker and a family man who had just vanished without a trace. About a week later, a woman who ran the laundromat went missing too, and overall six people total in just over a month disappeared. Nate and his deputies had searched every part of the woods, but it seemed like it was useless. Even with all the search parties, nobody found a body. Until somebody did. They found a body that was wrapped in a sack, tied with a rope, and sitting between two tree trunks. Deputies got the body down and unwrapped the sack, and this body was extremely pale in color, with flies swarming all over it, and it had pieces of skin missing, but it didn't look like an animal did this. These were clean-cut marks all over the body. The strange thing was, there wasn't one ounce of blood on the body. Nate tells his deputies to wrap the body back up and put it back in the tree where they found it, because whoever left the body there might be back for it. He gets two local hunters to stake out the area and watch the body, since they know the area well. Nate left to go develop the film from the scene photos and to get the John Doe's prints out to every county, and then he made his way back to the scene. He radios the two hunters, but gets nothing on the other end. He goes out into the woods to look and finds the other radio. There was no trace of the hunters after that. The next morning, Nate got a call from a sheriff in another county that their John Doe resembled a man named Abel Doherty, who was a mill worker who went missing too. Abel was last seen at a bar called Trucker's Tavern. Cut to that night at Trucker's Tavern, and we see Abel running into a friend he hadn't seen in months. This friend was named Edward Sykes. 
But when Abel confronts this man, he claims he isn't Eddie Sykes and that his name is Joe Allen. And he says that Abel must be confused. Abel still claims that this guy is Eddie Sykes, a man he used to work with. But this Joe Allen then does some type of like hypnosis on him, saying to Abel that he'll explain everything, but they have to go somewhere else, somewhere quiet, away from everybody in the bar. And under this hypnosis, Abel does exactly what Joe Allen says, which is to knock over his beer and act sloppy drunk and then ask him for a ride home. Abel does this and the two men leave together. Nate says that Sykes was a tenement worker who had been missing for nine months. He told a buddy of his that he was going hiking in the woods to go see a meteor shower and that he never came back to work after that. A week later, though, he showed up and started going by the name Joe Allen. Nate went to the house that Allen was staying at and Allen was at work, but Nate investigated his room anyway. There were flies and bugs all over and some kind of dead animal carcass it looked like in the fridge. And Nate also finds a strange ball that looks a lot like the ball at the beginning of the episode. And the landlord says that Alan had found the ball when he was in the woods the night of the meteor shower. She says that she hates the ball because it smells and it even has hair on it. That's which, disgusting. Like, <laughs> I hate that too. If I was a landlord and one of my tenants just brought in a ball, a smelly ball with hair on it. Like, I think that's reason enough to kick them out. I'd have some questions. Or maybe, maybe I would mind my own business like I would do if I heard a ghost in the morgue, you know? Because <laughs> I don't think anything bad happens to this landlady because she minded her own business. Yes. <laughs> she didn't get involved when spooky stuff started happening. <laughs> so Nate takes this ball into his custody, and then he goes to the Braddock Forks mine, where Alan works. They find Alan, and he breaks into the sheriff's car and steals the ball, running away and down into the mines. And now we are caught up with the show's beginning, with Alan being the weird guy that jumped on the elevator, and we see everything from the sheriff's point of view. The sheriff was there when the explosion happened. And the sheriff can't figure out why Alan did what he did. All right, now we get into the real reason why we chose this show for today's episode. Nate and Carl drive over to the makeshift morgue at an old refrigerator company that just happened to be in this town. I know. I was. I <laughs> thought that too. I was like, oh, okay. They have a weird. What a convenient place. <laughs> I know. I was thinking that too. I was like, if you're gonna have a makeshift morgue, that's not a bad place to have one. You have giant coolers. The deputy who got everything set up for Carl said that the temperature is 36 degrees, and that is as low as he could get it because there is some type of leak in the old refrigerator company. Also, they're doing this autopsy in the middle of the night, so I guess doing autopsies in the middle of the night is just a very stereotypical thing that coroners and Emmys do. They just happen to do all of their work in the middle of the night. It's more ominous and on brand for them. I guess our job isn't spooky enough without it being dark. We must do it at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe if we had to do that. Like, all right, autopsies have to start at midnight. Why? We are night shift now. <laughs> no longer day shift. <laughs> no. I'd be so scared and tired. <laughs> I would be a zombie. <laughs> Nate and Carl walk down the hall where there are 10 bodies on tables lining a hallway they turned into the cooler. Nate had told his deputies to get a head start for Carl by taking the clothes off the bodies, but these deputies only got as far as taking the boots off. That's probably, like, very on brand for them, too. Like, they don't really want to touch dead bodies like we do. Yeah. <laughs> it's also, I don't know if this is weird to say, it's hard to undress a dead body. It can be hard, especially if they're in rigor. Yes. This is, like, the one thing that nobody in our field really ever talks about, is how hard it is to undress dead yeah. weight. Taking off their shoes is sometimes really hard, especially if they have, like, really big boots on. And especially mm -hmm. now that it's getting colder out and everybody has layers and jackets upon jackets, 
we have to take every single jacket off. And sometimes, like, we try not to cut the clothes just for the sake of not cutting them. Right, if we can help it, yeah. But sometimes you really can't. So then, then you have to cut through five layers of clothing. And if they have two mm-hmm. or three layers of pants on... Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not it's not easy. It's definitely easier when there's, like, two of us in the morgue. It's really hard when it's just you trying to undress five bodies. Yeah. my arm, I'll, like, literally be sore later. Like... <laughs> I'm like trying to. Yeah, fight you have rigor. to break the rigor and take the one sleeve off, get it over their head, and then you get the other sleeve off. Mm-hmm. It's a rhythm that we have. <laughs> yeah, but there was one body in this makeshift morgue that nobody wanted to touch, and that was the body of Joe Allen. Nate leaves Carl to do his job. Carl is the reporting pathologist for the county coroner's office, and he sets up his tools. And if you guys remember Dexter at all and his tool setup, this very much reminded me of that like little scene that they have of him rolling out his tools. Is that like a common thing? I know our pathologists use like tools that we already have in the morgue. But yeah, we just like set them up. They don't normally come with their own tools. Do people do other I wonder if other pathologists like maybe bring their own tools. Like, do they have it like rolled up in a little thing like that? I know the one pathologist that we love working with. She does have her own tools. That's right. I know a while back, like she was constantly bringing them because some of our tools weren't very good until we got new ones. Mm-hmm. So I think they do have like their own set of scalpels, scissors, this and that, mm-hmm. knives. Every pathologist has a good set of knives. They gotta get a cool little case. Just, like roll it out. <laughs> <laughs> I also know another one of the other pathologists that we work with. He has a whole bag of his own tools. Gotta get it again. Gotta get him the real little rolly thing, like on TV, <laughs> <laughs> like Dexter. Yes. <laughs> so Carl rolls out his scalpels and knives, and then begins to dictate the autopsies. The main cluster of decedents was uncovered thirty yards from the suspect, Allen. Two of the decedents were proximate to Allen. Only one man was found alone between the two groups. So if any of the bodies contain this supposed bomb, fragments of the bomb, this would be that body. Carl starts with the first case here. He goes into the hallway, gets the first body, pulls him to the gurney that he's currently on onto the autopsy table. But we don't really see him taking any photos of the body as is. So I'm calling a red flag here. Just because he immediately starts cutting all the clothes off and, like, gets into the autopsy. And it's really important to take those as-is photos, one, to show the natural position of the body or anything on the body, and two, to show that you didn't alter anything before you removed the clothing. So especially, like, in an explosion case, like, we've worked an explosion case before, so those as-is photos of the clothing could be really important in determining where the bodies were in relation to the bomb and, like, any injuries sustained. If there's shrapnel, you can see all of that before you started taking everything off. So once he's done cutting the clothes off, he removes them and boxes everything for evidence. He then blocks his head, and we've talked about this before. Other people might do it differently in other offices, but when you're doing an autopsy, in our office at least, it's so much easier to block the body and not just the head. I had just a general question about why we always see it like this in movies and TV shows. Is it because, and I thought of this because I was watching Haunting of Hill House for like the fifth time because I love that show. Such a good show. And Shirley is the funeral director. And she just blocks the head while she's doing her mortuary work. I wonder if that's why they do it for just like 
autopsies in general in commonly in TV shows because people know that's how maybe embalming is done and they just think it's all the same. Yeah, I know embalmers only block the head because then once they put all the embalming fluid in, like the head and neck will stay up like that because it's always propped up on a pillow when right. it's in the casket for viewing. Right. Because that's immediately when I was rewatching Hill House and I saw Shirley do that. I was like, oh, that's like how we always see they do it in autopsies. I wonder if it's because people know they do this for embalming and they think it's the same type thing. They probably do. That was just a thought that I had. I don't know if it's true or if I'm just making stuff up, but that was my theory. Yeah, I feel like until you have worked in a morgue, you definitely only think that the head is blocked all the time. Yes, for sure. For sure. It's so much easier to block the body and not just the head. Carl reports that despite autolysis and putrefaction, he sees signs not inconsistent with asphyxial death. So autolysis is the destruction of cells or tissue by their own enzymes, and the pancreas undergoes rapid autolysis after death because it's so rich in enzymes. And putrefaction involves bacteria in the breakdown of organic matter and occurs rapidly in organs with a lot of bacteria, which is why decomposition is seen first in the abdomen and intestinal area, because that area is always filled with bacteria. So back to the show. Carl then begins to hose down the bodies to clean up all the dirt to examine the body better externally before he begins his internal evisceration. The body has bloody mucus and dirt under his fingernails, which are split, presumably from attempting to claw his way out of the rubble. That scene looked when, like, the nail, like, lifted up off of the nail bed as he's scraping under it. It, like, Mm -hmm. it made me cringe. One thing I hate is anything having to do with nails being, like, peeled off. So that was a very well done. I don't think I told you this, but at my old job at the Whole Body Donation Center, we had to take fingernails for whatever client that was for. So I I have done this before. You never told me. Oh my god, you never told me that. Oh no. We didn't do it very often because we didn't get a lot of like suitable donors that had good fingernails. But when we did, it's difficult. To, like, get the entire nail up instead of just, like, the nail clipping. I would imagine. Do you have to soak the nails at all, or do you just go for it? No, you kind of just go in. You kind of scrape underneath the nail so it frees up the space between the nail and your actual finger. And then you gently, with, like, forceps or hemostats, tug on the nail to free it up from the nail bed so you get the entire nail as one. Oh, you can't see me, everyone listening, but I'm covering my eyes and freaking <laughs> out. <laughs> see? Alice is mortified. <laughs> I now know how people feel when they come shadow autopsies and they freak out when we do eye stuff. Stop. Oh, my God. So I'm- I was talking to Dom earlier, my boyfriend Dom, and he was listening to last week's episode. And when you were explaining the guy who was shadowing was really freaked out about the eye stuff, he was like internally crying. He was like, I don't think I could handle that. I now <laughs> understand. I can because I, I guess eye stuff has never really bothered me that much. Uh, nails. Nails will get me. Nails is what and gets I, you. <laughs> oh my gosh! I'm so glad we don't. There have were to some do- like other like specific carving tools, mm-hmm. but you had to like get the whole thing, and you it couldn't break, or otherwise like you couldn't even use it. It wasn't viable. See, I am equally freaking out, but I also want to know more. <laughs> like, <laughs> we'll save the rest for another podcast episode. <laughs> yes, I know we can. Give all the details about this. I'm going to ask you tomorrow at work to tell me everything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Will do. 
So, back to the show. Carl Scrape's Under the Nails for Evidence collection. This could be a green flag, I think, because we would probably do the same. We have done nail clippings for, like, homicide investigation. I know we've done nail clippings and scrapings and swabs for sexual assault kits for collection. So, this isn't that far off from what I think that Mm -hmm. needs to be collected for this case. So, the autopsy then officially starts. Carl does his Y incision, and honestly, this is a pretty accurate representation of how a body looks when you do your initial cuts. Like, it shows the very distinctive layers of skin, Mm -hmm. the yellow fat, and the muscle. All the colors. Yeah, it's very colorful, an autopsy is. He gets his little rib cutters to cut the breastplate off, and we've mentioned this in last week's Jane Doe episode. There are a lot of noises during this part of the autopsy, more than they showed, There are definitely more cracking noises with the rib cutters since you're basically breaking and ripping apart the cartilage, especially when you get to the clavicle because that's the toughest part to go through because it's a lot thicker than like all your other ribs. That's always loud. Yeah, they, they didn't show as much noise as there really is. When you're cutting the breastplate off and you get to the clavicle, you basically cut all of it up and you lift the breastplate up while the clavicle is still attached to the soft tissue and you kind of just like twist it out and break it yourself and carl just like gently pulls up the breastplate <laughs> and like it was like a puzzle piece he just like picks it yes up. yeah yes it's basically a puzzle piece and he just lifted mm-hmm. it up and it's not that simple so he continues in his dictation the lungs exhibit subpleural ecchymosis consistent with extreme blunt force trauma probably from the explosion He cuts the lungs out of the chest, and another red flag here because he weighs the lungs together, and you're definitely supposed to weigh the lungs separately, and then from those two weights you add, you can add them together for like the lung total, but in order to fully examine, you definitely need like the separate weights because what if the left is heavier than the right? That could tell you something. I was just going to say that, yeah. Say something happened to the right side of the body, but not the left. You would see differences. You could see differences in the weights of the lungs because of that, or size, or everything. So, yeah. Yeah, like typically your right lung is heavier Mm -hmm. than the left because your right lung has three lobes and your left has two lobes, but there are some times when the left is heavier than the right, and that could be from extreme edema, there could be pneumonia, there could simply just be gravity. He was laying on his left side for a really long time, so all of the blood and fluids will pull to that side of the body, creating the lung to then suck up that fluid. (laughs) That got really gross. (laughs) (laughs) Like a sponge. This whole thing, we just explained how to take off people's breastplates from their ribs, so I think we're good. Bottom line, you weigh the lungs separately, and then you add those weights for your lung total. You do not weigh the lungs together. Right. He then dissected the heart on his cutting board, and I need to know who the props people, woman, man, were, because this heart seriously looked so accurate and exactly how a heart looks at autopsy. I was so impressed. I was so impressed. The texture and everything. Even when he cut into it, you could see the... The colors. The colors and the corda tendine. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh. Oh, it was... It was lovely. The, how the aorta <laughs> was. It was perfect. So Carl says that half of the heart is descended and engorged with dark blood along with the right coronary artery. Also, the way that he cut into the heart as he was dissecting it, he cuts straight into it 
And I I guess, like, every pathologist has their own way of dissecting, cutting the heart. Like, I've seen a bunch of the pathologists that we work with. They all do it kind of differently, but also kind of the same. So, like, normally pathologists will do little cuts along the anterior interventricular artery looking for any occlusions, and then do cross-sections of the heart to measure, like, how wide the heart wall is. Anyway, Carl sees signs of respiratory distress and concussive trauma, but these aren't injuries inconsistent with a bomb. There is nothing to prevent a finding of death by crush asphyxiation. Carl bags all of the dissected organs to be put back into the body cavity, which is something that we do do. I feel like people don't know really what happens at an autopsy until you see one, but everything does get bagged, and then that bag gets put into the body again. Yeah, they get put back. You don't, we don't just like throw out everything and go, all goes back no. with the body. No, the pathologist will save whatever sections of whatever organs they think they need saved and mm-hmm. the rest of it will be put back. You can definitely tell that these are fake prop organs. Real organs <laughs> at autopsy are much more floppy and it looks like he didn't even cut some of the things that he was putting into the bag. The stomach made me laugh out loud. He, yeah, it was. It looked like a plastic organ that an autopsy dummy would have. <laughs> I said that, I think, the next day at work. We saw our autopsy dummy, and I was like, oh, the stomach looks like the one from the show. They just, the heart was so impressive, and then... I saw him just toss a... It was like a hard plastic stomach. It looked like a mix between like a stomach and a liver. Yeah. And it like it wasn't flopping over side of his hand. He was Very just stiff. like stiff. Very yeah. stiff. <laughs> Carl also then sutures up the body at the end. And I really, I don't know where he learned to suture or where he did his residency in med school learning at. But he has no fear of having his non-dominant hand that close to the needle when he's sticking it through the skin flap. Yeah. Uh, he was going full force, man. And I I have stuck myself with the needle, and that hurts like a bitch. It does. He needs more safety lessons there. But he pulls the body back onto the gurney and goes to wheel the body back into the hallway. But just then, the hairs on the back of his neck stand up, and a voice inside his head says to run and get away. And guess what? He doesn't. He stays. He doesn't. He stays, and things go south. (laughs) Very, very rough for him. (laughs) It does end up getting very rough for him. Spoiler alert. He ignores the voice that tells him to get out and run, and he wheels the body back into the makeshift cooler and prepares for autopsy number two. He starts dictating this next autopsy, looking at the scene photos. This man was unearthed next to Joe Allen. Carl then thinks to himself about what if the explosion wasn't a botched escape attempt? What if the sphere wasn't a bomb, but the destruction was Alan's intention and not his escape? The clothing is removed from the decedent, and Carl sees what appears to be a small circular wound in the middle of the man's chest. He takes a probe and sticks it in the wound to see how deep it goes and if there's a path to the wound. The wound is deep and seems to curve through the diaphragm towards the heart. We'll give a green flag here because he starts to do his Y incision and he cuts around the wound in the chest, which is near the bottom of the sternum. So where there are wounds like that, and especially gunshot wounds, you should never cut through a wound. It's it's your evidence. You don't want to disrupt the evidence in any way if it can be avoided. So now there are times that we get bodies that have come from the hospital after some kind of accident or if they were shot and then brought to the hospital before they died and then they died at the hospital. And sometimes the hospital will cut through the wounds and that's obviously to try to save their life. So that's not the same as like what we're doing. 
But sometimes even then we're able to approximate the margins and determine the defect in that way. But best practice is to never cut through evidence on the body. Especially if there's a gunshot wound and they cut through it, like you can clearly tell what their cut is versus what the wound defect is. Right. Carl opens up this body and determines that the tract of the wound does go to the heart. The lungs and heart are shrunken and abnormally pale. Also, another thing to point out, when he cuts this main left lung out, it's very stiff and lays kind of like flat in his hands. And real lungs are pretty floppy unless there's some kind of fluid that's filling them and there's pneumonia going on that increases the weight of the lung and makes it harder to the touch. But in this case in the show, I don't think the guy's lungs would be that stiff, like how they show. Carl notes that the lung is completely drained of blood. He finishes his internal examination and sutures this body up, pulls back the gurney, and takes it into the hallway. Carl grabs his next body for autopsy. I also just want to stay. he was pulling a lot of bodies onto tables all on his own. And this is an older man, too. Props to him for how much weight he was pulling. He's definitely hitting the gym, because that's a lot of work. And they, he was pulling it kind of like how we pull bodies yeah. to other tables. Getting from like the other side yeah. of the table and pulling toward yeah. you. And that is a workout. He's done it, like, what, three times so far on his own? He's been doing arm day every day. (laughs) Every day is shoulders. His delts are insane. (laughs) (laughs) So Carl grabs his next body for autopsy. And again, this body has the same wound on the sternum. And I think another red flag to point out here is that Carl hasn't taken a single photo in any of these autopsies. He's been, this is on his third autopsy, and he oh hasn't taken God. a single photo the entire time. Because it's, it's midnight, and it's too dark to take photos. It's midnight in a spooky <laughs> refrigerator. Of course, his morgue has, like, one light, too. Yeah. Well, because it's an old refrigerator company. They didn't have lights. I, I know nothing about refrigerator companies. <laughs> they definitely have lights. I'm just making things up. Maybe not working lights. Maybe. He didn't even have a Polaroid camera like they did in Autopsy of Jane Doe. Right? Mm-mm. He had nothing. Mm-mm. He just had his tape recorder. Nate couldn't have let him borrow one of his film cameras. I know. There had to be something he could have used. But anyway, he opens up the chest cavity and examines the heart and lungs. So to me, it seems like he's only doing a partial or a limited exam on these bodies, which is when you mainly only open them up to look at the heart and lungs or sometimes the liver. But you basically, you know kind of what you're looking for when you go in. We do this exam for some of our cases, and it all just depends on the case. Every, every case is different. The case is dependent on if we need to do a partial or a full autopsy. So after Carl takes the breastplate off of this case, he sees that this body is also completely drained of blood. Carl is stumped at what is going on with these bodies. He looks closely at the scene photos and where the bodies are in relation to Alan. Just then, the lights in the facility go off, and Carl is left in the dark. Suddenly, the generator kicks on, and the lights come back on, and Carl suddenly has a crazy thought. He thinks, for some reason, that all of the blood from these bodies are in Alan's stomach. Why would you think that? (laughs) If weird stuff was happening in the morgue, and then I had a thought like that, I would just excuse myself. I would leave for the day. (laughs) Jess, I need to step out. (laughs) Alice has hit her breaking point. (laughs) My brain is broken. (laughs) Something is happening to me. I know that these cases are strange, and the whole case is totally insane, but I really don't think my first thought would be that people, other people's blood are in someone else's stomach. Right. I'm one, did the same voice that told him to leave also tell him, but we didn't hear it? Like, hey, check his <laughs> check stomach. Check the stomach. I, I, check the stomach. You'll never guess, but check the stomach. So Carl then decides that Joe Allen is going to be the next autopsy. He hears a creak coming from the hallway and checks it out. 
Alan's body on the morgue table starts twitching and making noise, and his zombie corpse gets up from the table. And he's just, Carl is just standing there, seemingly unfazed by this. I would be so gone if this happened to us. I would have been gone, like, 20 minutes ago. I wouldn't be there. It's midnight. I would have been gone when the little voice told me to leave. (laughs) You listen to that little voice. (laughs) That's your gut. Listen to your gut. (laughs) Yeah, he was just standing there unfazed by this. I will say I do kind of love it. So I love horror movies. I know I'm talking like I'm a chicken because I would run if this stuff happened to me in real life. Oh, I'm a chicken. But I love watching horror movies. And the way... I don't know how they made this person move or if it was CGI or some kind of contortionist like crawling around on the ground like a zombie was so good. So freaky. I know that like a lot of contortionists do get hired to do like these weird zombie scenes. It was perfect. It was like twitching in just the right amount of ways to like make your skin crawl. To make you cringe yeah, all over. Yeah, it's like, oh, body shouldn't, people shouldn't move like that. No one should move like that. But yeah, I would be so gone if I saw this happen in our morgue. If Out any, of there. I would be in another county. In another country. I'd be gone. I'd be, I'd have a different <laughs> name <laughs> somewhere else. I'd take you with me. You're welcome to come, but nobody else would see me again. <laughs> so the zombie corpse is just crawling on the floor towards Carl. And Carl's just standing there. And just get out of there, Carl. Like there's... Carl, leave. You need to go home. Carl, come on. So then this zombie Joe Allen gets up from the floor and they're in the autopsy suite now. He picks up the scalpel that Carl drops. So that was the one reaction he had was to drop his one weapon. He dropped his only weapon. He dropped the one weapon he was holding. So the zombie picks it up and starts to cut inside his mouth. He then whispers, help me. He continues to say that he is trapped in this flesh and that he is starving. He's a traveler, not of earth. The sphere was this creature's ship. Its destruction is their first duty facing discovery. Carl picks up a scalpel as he's talking to Alan. And these, like, tentacle things come out of Alan's mouth. And it looks like it ate Carl. Looks like it was attacking Carl to stop him from grabbing the scalpel. But no, the next scene, we see Carl, seemingly fine, but restrained on an autopsy table. Looks like he's the next autopsy of the night. Dun, dun, dun. Joe Allen then shows up cuts his own clothing off, and boxes it for as evidence as to not raise suspicion when the sheriff shows up later. When Alan and Carl become one, he says, since the pathologist has easy access to bodies, the weird alien thing that is inside Alan will be able to feed on all the bodies he wants. So basically the alien is trying to get from inside Alan's body into Carl's body because he's like, this is a gold mine. You're around bodies all the time. I'll be able to eat. This is when the storyline really took a turn. This is... (laughs) Bear with me as I try to give you a summary of what happened, everybody. I apologize. It's going to be all over the place. So the alien is going to transfer itself into Carl. So this alien entered Sykes as a larva through his mouth as he slept, which is just gross. And then it grew inside Sykes and then went by the name Joe Allen. The alien keeps talking on and on about how great their kind is and how they've inhabited men for a millennia. But Carl, who is braver than I, calls out this alien for jealousy, since they basically had to steal everything from humans. And then, so Joe Allen's body is sitting next to Carl's body on the autopsy table, and the alien is talking while performing an autopsy on its body that it's inhabiting. So as the alien is cutting into Allen's body to free itself, he's like explaining how he eats his previous victims. And the creature says that while he was feasting on some of his victims, 
it left the victims with just enough blood to keep their brain functioning so it could whisper into their eighth cranial nerve just exactly what it was doing to them. This is a new level of messed up. This is all messed up. The mind that it took to think up this plot line. I know. (laughs) I love when the villains always have their super long, drawn-out speeches and they explain their entire plan. It's really my favorite part of every single show and movie. It's the best. I love it. I love it so much. They do. Hold on, I got a monologue. I have to explain. So your eighth cranial nerve is also called your vestibular cochlear nerve, consisting of your vestibular and your cochlear nerves. The vestibular nerve is primarily involved in balance and eye movement, and the cochlear nerve is involved in hearing, as you might have guessed from this alien's creepy speech, explaining that he keeps it functioning so he can whisper to its victims. The alien also explains that Eddie Sykes, the body that it is currently inhabiting, is aware and, quote, with them right now, but he is mute and powerless while the alien is disemboweling him, doing the autopsy. So he's like Jane Doe, he can feel everything. No, I hate that. I hate that so much. So the alien opens up the chest and disembowels the body and takes out this sphere-like object with tentacles. So that's the alien thing being taken out of Edward Sykes slash Joe Allen's body. And it it does look like a squid. Like a little squid thing. It definitely looks like a squid. And he just <laughs> passes the thing like over to Carl, who's like tied up on a table. He's like, here you go. You can have this now. Can't take this now. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And he makes an incision on Carl's stomach for this squid alien thing to enter into. So Alan's slash Edward Sykes body then goes limp and dead once this thing is cut out of him. Carl notices that Edward Sykes must have known that this creature was actually deaf and blind on its own. So now the creature doesn't know exactly where to go. It just knows to try and crawl towards the bleeding wound on Carl. We hear Carl's internal monologue saying that he needs to think of a way to kill it before it takes over his own body. So then he grabs a scalpel that Alan had used to perform this autopsy on himself. And Carl cuts his neck and writes something on his chest with blood. He then also stabs himself in the ears, slits his own throat, stabs himself in the eyes. A lot happens in that short span of time. It was really excessive. So what he was basically doing was trying to ensure that there's no way for the creature to take over his body because the creature is going to rely on the human senses. So now it doesn't have sight, hearing, or speech, and Carl's body is going to bleed out and die. So death is the only way that this thing won't take over his body. So the creature is still able to control Carl's body because he's not quite dead yet, but is super confused when it gets into Carl's body and it can't hear anything or see anything in his mind. We can then hear the alien and Carl communicating via Carl's eighth cranial nerve. I just, I can't believe I'm like, describing this show. If this show didn't get crazy, now it's really out of pocket. So, <laughs> so crazy. And the alien seems distressed and confused and not being able to see or hear. And Carl reveals that he did this intentionally to stop the alien. The alien can still move and control Carl's body, however. And he makes Carl sit up from the table. And we see the sheriff on his way back to the facility. And Carl, via his eighth cranial nerve, tells the alien that there is also a, quote, terminal leak. I'm assuming he cut his carotid artery when he cut his neck. And that his body is bleeding out, so Carl's body will not survive for long. The one thing the alien forgot was that the whole time when he was having his dramatic monologue was that Carl's tape machine for his dictations was still recording. The sheriff comes back into the makeshift morgue and finds his friend dead on the floor, which was really sad. Yeah. It made me bummed. 
And the message that Carl had written on his chest in his own blood says, play tape, burn me. The end of this wild ride of a show. I really wasn't expecting this show to take the alien turn when I first started watching it. And I know this probably goes without saying, but neither me or Alice have performed an autopsy on an alien. Not yet, (laughs) but there is still time. I have hopes. (laughs) (laughs) It's on my bucket list. Actually, no. After watching this episode, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) But we did get curious about what would happen if we simply just Googled alien autopsy. And the results are disturbing. (laughs) (laughs) As one would imagine. They are very interesting, but kind of disturbing. So, while this technically isn't really a true crime story, we will get into the strange incident of the alleged UFO crash in Roswell, New Mexico, and once again, alleged alien autopsy that followed. In the summer of 1947, U.S. Army Air Forces announced that they discovered a, quote, flying disc from a rancher near Roswell, New Mexico. Rancher W.W. Mac Brazel found the wreckage on his property about 75 miles north of Roswell. There had been other reports of mysterious flying discs seen that summer, so Brazel believed this to be something similar. He turned the wreckage over to Sheriff George Wilcox of Roswell, who then brought it to Colonel William Blanchard, who was the commanding officer of the Roswell Army Airfield, the RAAF. The following day, the RAAF released a statement saying, The many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the intelligence officer of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force Roswell Army Airfield was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers and the sheriff's office of Chaves County. After the statement... Sorry, if I was around at that time and, like, a governmental, like, military base was like, wow, we found a flying disc and we don't know what it is, I would 100% be like, oh my god, aliens are coming for us. It's an alien. It has to be. (laughs) That's that's what I would think. (laughs) So after the statement, the Roswell Daily Record printed a story about the crash to which RAAF quickly responded saying that it wasn't a, quote, flying saucer, but debris from a weather balloon, releasing photos of the weather balloon as proof. (laughs) <laughs> They're just trying to cover it up now. They're like, oh, never mind, They're guys. like, oh, psych, we didn't think that. <laughs> it's not aliens. We promise. In 1994, <laughs> however, the U.S. Air Force stated in a report that the weather balloon story was false and that the wreckage was actually a spy device created for a classified project called Project Mogul. The device was a connected string of high-altitude balloons equipped with microphones that were designed to float over the USSR during the Cold War to monitor their activity and the possibility that the USSR was building an atomic bomb. Some eyewitness accounts from the 1947 crash stated they saw, quote, alien bodies being taken from the crash site, but the U.S. Air Force explained that these were parachute test dummies in a more extensive follow-up report in 1997. However, before this, in 1995, London-based producers Ray Stantilli and Gary Shufield released a 17-minute black-and-white film that showed a so-called alien autopsy from the Roswell crash. In the film, three pathologists in full-body hazmat suits are seen dissecting a pale, pot-bellied corpse of what appeared to be an extraterrestrial being. At least they were wearing their PPE. <laughs> I only care that people in our field wear proper PPE. I don't care what you do, just have proper PPE. Green flag for the... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the release of this tape set off immediate controversy. Did they not expect that? Obviously, yes. (laughs) A documentary was released titled Alien Autopsy, Fact or Fiction, that was 
It was so popular, it aired on Fox three times, and at one point it attracted 11.7 million views. I... So I was around during this time, but I was two years old. If I had been older, I definitely would have been one of those viewers. I would have been so into this. You were two years old in 90... 1995. Five? I was. Oh, okay. I yeah. was not even a thought I, yet. I know. <laughs> I know I'm old, okay? No, you're not. <laughs> For over a decade, the question as to whether or not the alien autopsy was a hoax or not remained a hot debate. The London-based producers, Stantilly and Shufield, claimed to have bought the autopsy footage from a retired military cameraman, but refused to reveal his name for his privacy. The following year, Stantilly taped an interview with the cameraman, but the man did not give a name or show his face on camera, so this really didn't do, do a lot to prove his credibility. Right. He's like, it let me offer you proof with no proof. It's like they deepened his voice and pixelated his face out. It's just him talking to himself. It wasn't for another decade that some of the truth about the alien autopsy video came out. A journalist and British TV presenter, Eamon Holmes, hosted a special called Eamon Investigates Alien Autopsy. It aired on the Sky Network in Britain in 06 and features Stantilly admitting to Holmes that the video was a fake. No. But Stantilli claimed it was based on a real alien autopsy video he had seen. He had tried to get the money to buy the original real autopsy tape, but by the time he got enough money, the film had been too damaged to use. A likely story. So he came up with the idea to recreate what he saw in the original video. He also revealed that the military cameraman that he interviewed was a homeless man he met on the street. I hope he paid him. <laughs> I hope so, too. That man worked for that money. He better have paid him whatever he was making from this hoax autopsy video. Santilli defended himself by saying, It's no different than restoring a work of art like the Mona Lisa. Honestly, I think it's very different. This man just compared... He compared his video... A grainy black and white fake alien autopsy to the Mona Lisa. The audacity of men. The audacity. It's also revealed in the Amen Investigates special that John Humphreys, a sculptor that was part of the team that won a BAFTA in digital effects for Max Headroom in 1987 and worked on shows like Doctor Who, he was hired to make the fake alien corpse for the alien autopsy footage. So he also kept it a secret for a while. Do you think he kept it a secret to be in on the hoax or do you think he was just embarrassed to be a part of the whole thing? My first thought was that he was probably really embarrassed he spent so much time on it. Because I... But also maybe it was like a really great prank that they were playing on everybody. That's true, too. Maybe he was in on the prank. So one of the reasons that Santilli and Shufield decided to come clean about the hoax footage from 1995 is that later in 2006, after the Amen Investigates aired, a comedy film titled Alien Autopsy was released that was loosely based on their 1995 film. Both Santilli and Shufield were credited as executive producers in the comedy spoof. I wish I was older so I could fully appreciate this time in the 90s when everybody was freaking out about an alien autopsy video. I think it was so relevant in like pop culture. X-Files actually did an episode like making fun of it. I just really can't believe that this was a real thing. <laughs> I was reading about it. I forget what they called it. But yeah, I think there was an X-Files episode that came out around like the 90, 95, 96 and everybody was freaking out about it, kind of goofing on everybody who believed it. People are so gullible. <laughs> Me, I'm people. <laughs> I'm gonna say, I, if I was aware of anything other than Blue's Clues at the time that this show came out, I probably would have 
falling for it. So we got our information on the Roswell UFO crash and the alien autopsy from a History.com article titled, What Really Happened at Roswell by Adam Janos, and a Time article titled, How an Alien Autopsy Hoax Captured the World's Imagination for a Decade by Natalie Langerfeld. And both of those will be linked in our show notes if you're interested in learning more about this crazy conspiracy theory. Come here for the autopsies, stay for the conspiracy theories. We give you the best of both worlds. And other worlds. Extraterrestrial worlds. (laughs) (laughs) So we tallied a total of two green flags and three red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of Cabinet of Curiosities does not pass in terms of forensic accuracy. But that heart that they used in this episode for sure passes on accuracy rating. Oh, absolutely. Scale, that was great. And it's it's still it's a great show. Please watch it. I know we're laughing about it now, but like it was really spooky and really fun to watch. If you're into this kind of stuff, highly mm-hmm. recommend. I mean, show. if you're gonna die, do it strangely so you support your local pathologist and medical examiner. <laughs> As always, thanks for hanging out with us. If you enjoy our podcast, share it with your friends and hit us up on Instagram to DM us with any show suggestions. Also, if you really love our podcast, be sure to give it a rating on Apple or Spotify and give it a comment. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye!